Guten Morgen. Gnade sei mit euch und Frieden von Jesus Christus, unserem Herrn. Oh, you speak no German. Tomorrow is Reformation Day. So, sermon with German accent. How about that? Okay, well, it's a privilege for me to be here this morning. As you know, Ilse and I love this church and we love the people here. Tomorrow is Reformation Day. And the man at the center of the Reformation in Germany, of course, was Martin Luther. Now, as a young man, Martin Luther once traveled in the countryside. And as he was traveling, he got into a terrible storm. And... The rain was pounding down and the wind blows, was blow, blowing hard and suddenly lightning struck right in front of him. And Luther realized he had escaped death by the skin of his teeth and, and he saw that as a sign from heaven and when the thunder exploded all around him, he thought that he could hear the voice of God, you terrible sinner, you deserve death. The man was so terrified with that that he immediately decided to be a monk and to study the word of God for the rest of his life. And then years later, he was about to be ordained as a priest in what was then the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And one day, he was in church preparing the Lord's Supper. And as he held up the cup, suddenly... A thought struck his mind, and the thought was, how can I, a terrible sinner, a dirty man, touch the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ? And the thought so terrified him that he thought, I will add blasphemy to what is already an exceedingly great sin. And so that morning, he could not serve the Lord's Supper, and... He left the church, he went home, he fell into a terrible state of despair and depression for many weeks and many months. And from then on, Martin Luther was vexed by one question, and the question was, how can I, Martin Luther, how can I be righteous before the God who hates sin? How can I become righteous before God? You know, that's really a key question for all of us. It's a key question because the answer to that question determines your lives. It determines what has value in your life and what hasn't value. It determines what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. And the reason is because only if you're righteous before God, you have a legitimate hope to have eternal life. If you're not righteous before God, God will condemn you to eternal death in his judgment court. Now, many people today think that eternal life is like the city park, right? It's beautiful, it has flowers, there are fountains. And there's a sign at the entrance that says, free entry for everybody, just come in. 
You know what? That's a lie. It's not only a lie, it's a dangerous illusion to think that. The Bible tells us in no uncertain words that not everybody will have eternal life. It says eternal life is only for those people who are righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Everybody else goes to hell. And hell means eternal suffering in complete separation from God. Hell is a terrible place. It's a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and where there's fire that's never quenched and where the worm doesn't die. And now you think, well, in this day and age, we're modern people. It's hard enough to believe in God, right? And it's hard enough to believe in heaven. And now he comes with hell? Come on. But you know what? God talks about hell. Jesus talks about hell. What I just said about weeping and gnashing of teeth and the fire not being quenched and the worm not dying, that's a quote from Jesus. That's what Jesus says. And so, you know, it's like when you order something online and when you filled out everything, then they make you click that button that says, I accept the terms of this purchase. And it's either you accept it all or you don't accept it. And the word of God is like that. Either you accept it all and you have to accept hell. Or you don't accept it, but if you don't believe in hell, you're really mocking God. Because what you're telling God is, now look, from page X to page Y, I like your word. But in between, from Y to Z, I don't like it. It's not for me. Well, hell is a place to be avoided at all costs. And that's why Luther was so afraid of adding more sin to his unrighteousness. Do you fear hell? You better do. Because it's real. You know how we like to say we can get a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like? Through faith and through the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says the Holy Spirit is a down payment to heaven. And so if we're in a community of people who have the Holy Spirit, we get sort of a a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Well, we can also get a foretaste of what hell is going to be like. If you want to get it, I suggest you go over to Kirkwood Square and you look into the eyes of drug addicts who haven't had a shot for three days. And you see the despair and you see the, you know, just black holes of people who have no hope in life. That's a foretaste of hell. Hell is a real place. And if you're with Martin Luther and you fear hell, then this becomes the key question of your life. How can I be righteous before God? Because hell is to be avoided at all costs. And eternal life is more precious than anything else. Therefore, it's of the greatest importance to know how can I be righteous in the eyes of God. What can I do 
to be righteous in the eyes of God? What deed of mine is precious enough, valuable enough, that it buys me my righteousness? And that's the question Luther and the people at his time were dealing with day in, day out. And many people are rightfully dealing with that question still today. The church at Luther's time had invented many answers like go on a pilgrimage to Rome. Or pay the church a lot of money to buy off your sin. And people today invent thousands of things they believe will buy them a place in eternal life. Give money to charities. Have quiet time, 30 minutes every day. Be nice to grandmother. Okay? And in the times of Luther and today, people are left with the question, is it enough? Does it suffice? Shouldn't I do 45 minutes of quiet time? Should I also be nice to grandpa? What else can I do to assure my righteousness? Now let's hear what Jesus has to say about this question of righteousness. I'm going to read to you a passage from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. And I'd like you to stand up while we listen to the word of God. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, all the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed or shall be better than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Lord Jesus, thank you for this warning that you're giving us this morning. Thank you for telling us that we have to think about our righteousness. And Lord, this morning I ask you to open up our hearts and our ears that we hear well and we understand well what you have to tell us. And please, Lord, show us how we can be righteous before God. Please, Lord, bless our hearing and bless my preaching. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you look at this passage, two things are pretty clear. One is Righteousness has to do something with the law. Jesus talks about the law and then he talks about righteousness. So the two must be connected. And the second is, there's only gold standard. Okay? God does not grade on a curve. Sorry, college students. There's no B minus and you pass. 
Okay? What Jesus says is, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, who were the scribes and the Pharisees? The scribes were people who knew how to write. And so they spent time copying the law of God in handwriting. Okay? You know what that means? That means they knew every dot and every tittle. They knew exactly what the, the law said. And the Pharisees were the most pious people in the, in, in the people of God. Those who observed the law of God more carefully than anybody else. And so what Jesus says is if your righteousness is not better than the righteousness of those who know the law perfectly and who apply it better than anybody else, your righteousness is worthless. B minus doesn't help. It's either you're righteous or you're unrighteous. And if that's the standard, people, how can I but despair like Martin Luther did and say, ha, this is too high for me. And then Jesus in the same passage says, you are to be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay? The standard is up there. So if righteousness is connected to the law, we can think about what happens in a court trial. Imagine a person who has been accused of having broken the law, like the thief on the cross had been accused of stealing. And before the court, obviously the defendant denies that he has done it, and he seeks to justify himself, which means he seeks to explain that he is innocent, he is righteous, But then, that's not enough. The court will call witnesses. And some of the witnesses will speak in his favor, and some will speak against him. And after hearing all the arguments, then finally the court decides. Either this man is guilty, or this man is innocent. And then the judge issues a verdict. If guilty, the person is unrighteous and will be punished. And if innocent, the person is righteous and goes free. The judge has justified him. You understand? He doesn't justify himself. The judge has justified him. Now, that does not change that person. It does not make a bad person into a good person. The thief on the cross was a thief. He was a bad man. And when Jesus said, you will be in paradise with me, he was still a bad man. But he had put his faith in the right place. And that meant he could be declared righteous by Jesus Christ and he could enter paradise. And so what the justification by the judge does is it determines what is true from now on in society. If the judge justifies Paul, nobody can can call Paul a sinner. Uh, Excuse me. Nobody can call Paul a thief. Okay? Nobody can say Paul is a criminal because the judge has declared Paul a righteous person. And so, the person is free to live a normal life. 
Now, the Bible uses the concept of righteousness in the same way. Righteousness is not a personal attribute. It's not a personal quality. What righteousness does is it describes our relationship with God. That's what righteousness does. Righteousness means is that this relationship is right. It is as God has meant it to be when God created you. Okay? And so God alone has the right to declare whether or not that's true. Because God is the judge of this world. So you may think you're righteous, but that doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. What matters is that God says you're righteous or you're not righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And so a righteous person is not a person of superior qualities or superior resources. It is a person of whom God says his or her relationship with me is right. So what Jesus says here is you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless God the Father declares that your relationship with him is right. And it's better than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. The only thing that separates you from eternal life is God's decision, God's pronouncement. You are righteous and you can come in. Or you're unrighteous and you go to hell. And so the question is, what can you do to make God declare that you're righteous? Now, first point to recognize is that being righteous is not natural to us. The word of God tells us that everybody's relationship with God is destroyed from the beginning. It's rotten from the roots. That's the meaning of sin. King David says in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. My mother conceived me in sin. And so what he's saying is that when in the moment when my existence began, my relationship with God was already bad, destroyed. Okay? Psalm 58, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They're separated from God before they've even been born. Jeremiah 17, the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Ecclesiastes say, says, there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. We were by nature children of wrath just as the others, Paul writes in Ephesians, those who are in the flesh, which is our natural state of existence, cannot please God, Paul writes in Romans. So the natural state of our affairs is that our relationship with God is destroyed before we even realize it. Because because we all love ourselves more than God. Because we all love ourselves more than our neighbors. Because we all constantly make our own bellies and our own thoughts the standards of everything. Right? Instead of making God and his word the standard of everything. Because we adore ourselves more than we adore God. 
because we put ourselves at the center of our world instead of putting God at the center. And so if God treats us for what we naturally are, we have no hope for eternal life at all. There's no chance that God would declare us as righteous if he treats us for what we naturally are. If we just live according to our natural desires and inclinations, we can be sure there's no hope for us. So the only hope you have for eternal life is that God declares you righteous in spite of what you are naturally. That something happens. Somehow your relationship with God is set in order and God can say you're righteous although you were born as a sinner. Although being righteous completely contradicts everything you are in your nature. And so the question is, how could that happen? And the Bible tells us there are two ways how that could happen. The first way is the way of the law of God. The law which God gave to Moses, the law which reigns the covenant between God and his people Israel. Leviticus 18, God says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall Live by them. I am the Lord. Or Ezekiel 18. If a man has walked in my statutes and kept my commandments, he is righteous. He shall surely live, says the Lord. Jesus himself says in Matthew 19. If you want to enter life, eternal life that is, keep the commandments. The law is the constitution for a life that pleases God. It tells us how to live and be righteous. And now you may think, oh, but the law is so big and there are so many rules and impossible to keep them all. And you know what? The law is not dumb. The law recognizes exactly that point. And therefore the law has commandments, has rules for what to do if a person breaks a commandment. It tells that person, go and confess what you've done, repent of it, ask the Lord for forgiveness, and then bring a sacrifice, pay for your guilt. And then the law includes the promise of God that your sin will be forgiven. Okay? So the law has a provision for what to do when a person breaks individual commandments. The Jews still have Yom Kippur. It's the great cleaning day, the day of atonement, when all the sins of the children of Israel were confessed, repented, sacrifices were being brought, and then they were forgiven. And so a Jew could keep all the commandments if he really worked hard at them, hard at obeying all the rules for his life, and if he confessed and repented and paid for all the instances where he violated a commandment. And therefore Paul the Apostle could say of himself in all sincerity concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Paul writes in Philippians. Now, 
Remember, Paul was already a believer when he said that. Okay? And he said, concerning the law, I was blameless. He didn't say, I kept every single rule. What he said was, when I broke the law, I did what the law told me to do. I confessed, I repented, I brought a sacrifice, God forgave me. Matthew 5, Jesus says in the text we just heard that he did not come to abolish the law, quite the opposite. Jesus says the the law will remain until the end of the world. And this implies that the way of righteousness which is in the law remains until heaven and earth pass away. He who follows it in all details, Jesus says, will be, great, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And yet, and yet there's a problem. The way of the law was the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were people who had committed themselves entirely to living according to the law in all its details. People who made super efforts, visible to everybody, super efforts to keep all the details of the law. And still Jesus says their righteousness is worth nothing. It's not great enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. So what do we make of that? There is the way of the law to righteousness. There are these people who walk that way as perfectly as a man can do. And Jesus says, it's not enough. Well, Paul gives us an answer in Galatians 3 where he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And to be cursed obviously means not to be righteous before God, not to enter into the kingdom of heaven, not to find eternal life. So all, rely on the, all who rely on the works of the law to be righteous are under this curse. Now, Notice that Paul does not say the number of laws is too large. And Paul does not say the law is too hard. After all, as we saw, the law has rules for how to deal with breaking the law. What Paul is really talking about, the key question is, what do you rely on? And so Paul is saying everyone who relies on his own ability to keep the law is under the curse. Because he thinks that he himself is earning righteousness. That God owes him righteousness on account of all the many things that he does for God. So cursed is he who puts his own ability and work into the center of his relationship with God. That's the meaning of what Paul says. People whose relationship with God is completely determined by the law and by what they do for God, end up being cursed, not righteous. Now, if you look at the life of Paul, you actually see that Paul had experienced this. As a young man, Paul was full of zeal for the law of God. Paul wanted to do everything he could to fulfill the law of God 
and to glorify God in doing that. And so what did he do? He saw the disciples of Christ. He saw that they were confessing Christ as their savior. And he thought the Jews have crucified Jesus as a criminal. So these people who confess Christ, they are criminals. They are breaking the law. And so what Paul decided to do was to go after them ruthlessly, to persecute them, to bring them before the courts. Paul watched how they were beaten up by violent mobs, how they were stoned and killed. And Paul did all that in order to gain favor and righteousness in the eyes of the Lord. Paul thought he was perfectly righteous. But then in the most decisive moment of his life, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul had to recognize that his own zeal for the law had made him an enemy of God. He had to realize that while he was working hard, as hard as he could, to fulfill the law, he had become an enemy of God because he was persecuting the Son of God himself. Everything that he had done to become righteous before God had made him an object of wrath because he ended up hating God's own son and persecuting his disciples. And the Pharisees had a very similar problem. God sent his beloved son to them to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God and the love of God. And they hated him. Instead of accepting the gospel, they hated him because Jesus called into question their way of being pious, their way of being legalistic, their way of applying the law. And so they ended up killing him. The Pharisees were so much focused on the individual rules and on what they did, their own way of dealing with the law, that they completely disregarded God and they didn't recognize God when he came to them. Now Jesus says at one point, the most important law is to love God with all your heart and all your might. And you see what happened there? They tried to keep all the commandments and they ended up not loving God. So they broke the most important law by trying to fulfill all the other laws. And so the problem is not that the way of the law does not lead to righteousness. The problem is that every person who embarks on that way goes astray. The further he progresses on the way of the law, the more he relies on his own ability and achievements, the way of the law entices him to justify himself before God, like the defendant before the court. He goes to God and says, now look, God, I did this. I paid money to the church. I had five times, five days this week, I had quiet time. And I was so nice to grandmother. And now, Lord, would you please accept that I'm righteous? Right? That's what the law does to us. If we're on the way of the law, we think that God has to be impressed with what we do and owes us eternal life. The way of the law flatters our vanity because it gives us the impression that what matters is what we do, 
We're important. The problem is that the further we progress on this way, the more grandiose we think about ourselves and the smaller we think about God. Because we end up thinking about God like a petty merchant. You know, I, I give you five days of quiet times and you give me righteousness. It's like buying apples against dollars. And so we end up thinking that God is really on the same level as we are. And we look him in his eyes and we say, now look, what I do for you, you owe me eternal life. The way of the law serves our desire for self-insurance, self-assurance. Because it gives us the illusion that we can accumulate enough good deeds so that we're safe. God has to give us eternal life. The way of the law flatters our craving for recognition because it gives us the illusion that when other people say, you're so pious, God says the same, right? So when other people say, oh, you're going to do so much for the church, that's wonderful, I think, yeah, God must think the same, right? So, no. That's just an illusion. That's not the way God looks at us. The way of the law entices us to make our religious efforts our idol. And that's the curse of the law. The further we progress, the more we get away from God. Because the more we focus on ourselves, and the less we look at God. Paul says in Romans 7, The law is good. But sin, taking occasion of by the commandment, deceived me and killed me. And therefore, in Galatians 3, Paul kind of puts a sign in front of the way of the law. A big sign that says, do not enter. It's a good way, but it's not good for you. Do not enter. And so that leaves us with the other way to righteousness, which is the way of Jesus Christ. The person who embarks on this way does never try to justify himself before God. Exactly the opposite. He asks God to justify him, to declare him righteous. Galatians 3, Paul summarizes this way in a quotation from Habakkuk, the prophet. And he says, the just will live by faith. The just will live by faith. That was one of the battle cries of the Reformation. Sorry about Martin Luther is that Luther went on a pilgrimage, a trip to Rome. And so he got into the big city with all the other pilgrims. And they all went to a church. And in order to enter the church, they had to get up a hill with several hundred steps to climb. Okay, And so Luther, with all the other pilgrims, got on his knees. He didn't walk up the stairs. He got up, down on his knees, and then step by step okay, on his knees. And for every step, he breaks, and he prays. And then they sing a song, and then they climb another step. And so this goes on and on, and it's hot. Because it's in Italy and it's the summer. And he gets thirsty. And his knees hurt. Because he's a heavy man. And he's in pain in his whole body. 
but he keeps going and going. And finally he sees the end of the stairs and the entry to the church. And suddenly a thought goes through his mind. The just will live by faith. Not by the pain of their knees. Not by the thirst. Not by the pain of their bodies. And so suddenly Luther realizes how absurd it is what he does. And he realizes, my Savior is Jesus Christ. And so he gets up, he turns around, and he shouts, The Lord Jesus is my Savior, the just will live by faith. And then he walks down the steps. And he goes back to Germany and starts the Reformation. The just will live by faith. Faith is the relationship that binds us to Jesus Christ. Faith means to know, to consent, and to trust. Faith is to know who God is and who I am. He is holy. I'm a dirty sinner. Faith is to know that God is a loving father and the creator of the world. It is to know that I'm completely unable and my heart is completely unwilling to maintain a loving relationship with God. To know that God has done everything necessary to establish such a relationship by sending his son Jesus Christ into the world who died on the cross. Faith is to consent that this is for me as we have sung this morning. Dear, sweet Jesus, this is for me. To consent that the sacrifice of Christ is for my particular and personal sin. And faith is to trust in Christ and that his sacrifice is sufficient to make me righteous before God and to obtain eternal life for me. So the way of Christ to righteousness through faith begins with a declaration, a declaration of complete bankruptcy. You stand before the Lord and you say, Lord, I have nothing in my hands to earn righteousness. I bring nothing. I'm completely bankrupt. There's nothing I can bring to you that earns me righteousness. There's only one thing in my life and that one thing is that I trust in the Lord Jesus, my Savior. And the most wonderful thing in this world is that when we declare bankruptcy to God and we trust in the Lord Jesus as our Savior, then God will smile at us and say, you're righteous. Because that's exactly the relationship that is right with God. To trust in Jesus and to forget about everything we do. Because it earns us nothing. And if we trust in Jesus, then we can be confident that God will be merciful to us. And account the righteousness of Jesus to us. Because Jesus is righteous. As Paul says in Romans 4, to him who does not rely on works, 
but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That faith doesn't make you a better person. Paul Belcher is not a better person because he believes in Christ. But he is a righteous person in the eyes of God. And that's what matters. Because faith is what God expects from us in our relationship with him. God justifies us if we have faith in Christ. And that justification has two aspects. One is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness means they're no longer there. God has wiped them away. They don't exist anymore. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Our relationship with God is no longer tilted, tainted by sin. And the other is God accounts to us the love and obedience Jesus had towards him. Jesus was the only man who ever loved God with all his heart, all his might, all his soul. Jesus was the only man who ever loved his neighbor more than himself. We don't. But if we trust in Christ, if we have faith in him, God treats us as if we were as obedient and as loving as Christ himself. And so on the way of Christ to righteousness, we have no need to impress God. We don't have to play games or pretend. Nor do we ever have reason to fear that what we do is not enough. It is enough. Christ has done enough. If we confess that Christ is the only basis for our righteousness, God does not see us as proud and arrogant sinners. He looks at us and he smiles because he sees his own son, Jesus Christ. And therefore he says, you're righteous. Come into my kingdom. And that righteousness is better than the righteousness of the Pharisees because it puts God at the center, not ourselves. Because it gives us hope, although we know that we're sinners. And because it makes us free to love others. And so now you think, okay, I'm a smart person. I have a U.S. passport. I'm a smart person. So I decide to have faith in Jesus Christ from now on and work really hard at that every day. And this afternoon I'm going to make that declaration of bankruptcy. Right? Wrong. Don't even start that way. Because if that were the truth, then you're right back at the way of the law. It's all your achievement. It's all your cleverness. It's all how smart you are. And we would be right back in the way of the law. So the question is, how do we get this faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer is, it's not something that comes from us. It's God's free gift to us. Paul says in Ephesians, By grace alone you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, Lest, any, lest anyone should boast. Remember, our nature is to be opposed to God, to hate God. Faith does not come naturally to us. God 
has to give it to us. God has to plant it in your hearts and your mind. It's our part, your part, to accept this wonderful gift and to respond to him by declaring bankruptcy before him and trusting Christ alone. But then you ask, well, but is there any way that I can be sure to have such faith? Is there any way I have assurance? Because if not, then how do I know that my faith is right? That it's not something I have cooked up in my mind. And the answer is yes. Remember, your nature is to be opposed to God. And so if you feel even a little bit of love for Christ, if you feel even a little bit of love for your Father in heaven, if you realize even a little bit how much you're in need of the mercy of our God, if you adore him even a little bit, that's a sure proof that God has put the seed of faith into your heart. Cultivate it. Enjoy it. Let it grow. Rise up from your toils and your misery as Luther did on the steps of that church and cry out with him, Christ alone is my Savior. The just will live by faith. Would you please rise and say that with me? Come on, people, get up. Say it with me. Christ alone is my Savior. The just will live by faith. Amen.